0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on December 19th at approximately 3pm London time. So we were just wrapping our presents and decided let's take a break. And uh, have a talk about terrorism. So, I'm joined today by Mary Beth Altier, a clinical assistant professor at New York University's Center for Global Affairs. Mary Beth received her PhD from Princeton University and then worked as a postdoc on a project on terrorist disengagement, re engagement, and recidivism at the Pennsylvania State University. She has also conducted postdoctoral research on the stability of democracies formed during different wartime settings. Dr. Altier is currently working on a book manuscript based upon her dissertation, which won the American Political Science Association's Ernst B. Haas Award in 2013. The project examines support for political parties associated with terrorist groups in relatively free and fair elections. She's also the 2015 recipient of the American Political Science Association's organized section on European politics and society's best paper award, and has published her work in a number of journals, including the Journal of Peace Research, Security Studies, and Terrorism and Political Violence. So, Mary Beth, thanks for joining us on today's podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, John.
0: So, how did you first get involved in this area of research?
1: Okay, so I actually, I wasn't planning to get involved uh, in in terrorism research. I was actually an undergrad as a a math major, um, but I also double majored in history. So uh, after college, you know, thinking about sort of my career options, math seemed to be sort of the more lucrative option, and it also seemed to be the one where there are a little bit more opportunities. So I started working as an actuary, actually, Um, and my job was basically to look at the financial health of the insurance industry. Um, So I did that for about a year, and the attacks on the World Trade Center happened, um, and then my job quickly shifted, and I was sort of tasked with um, assessing the risk uh, of the, or or sort of the total costs of the attacks uh, uh, to the insurance industry. Um, So after that, I sort of shifted, and I decided I wanted to get back back into sort of my history roots, Um, so I applied for the political science uh, program at Princeton University, uh, and I entered there. Um, And so at Princeton, I started looking at why individuals support violence. So I'd always been interested in this question when I was doing my undergraduate thesis. I looked at the Irish Revolution and I looked at at why, um, you know, people sort of support violence in societies, why there's mass public support for violence. Uh, So at Princeton, I looked at that question, why individuals support violence, um, and particularly why in developed democracies, they support parties uh, associated with terrorist groups. Um, So from there, um, I, I decided to, uh, to, once I graduated, I took a postdoc uh, with Dr. John Horgan um, because I was interested in not just sort of the political science aspects, uh, but the psychological aspects. Um, and so, um, so that sort of really pushed me into looking at the, the reasons for individual, not just sort of the structural political conditions in which we see support for political violence and terrorism, but also, uh, you know, why individ- at the individual level, um, sort of the psychological aspects of support for terrorism but also uh, why individuals participate in terrorism and why they choose to, to abandon terrorism or go back, go back to terrorism. Um,
0: why, why was support something that interests you so much? Because when a lot of people are talking about terrorism they, and mm-hmm. researching terrorism, they want to focus on the terrorists themselves. But you're looking at yeah. that support <laughs> network around. What was it about that support network that really interested you?
1: I think that the reason why support was important, uh, for me at least, was uh, it goes back to my training in political science. Um, so in terms of um, the literature in political science, there were a lot of people at the time uh, focusing on why elites uh, support political violence, particularly in democracies, or why they turn uh, to terrorism. Uh, so Leonard Weinberg's work, for, entran- for instance, looks at why uh, political parties turn to terrorism. Uh, so, but there weren't a lot of people really looking at why people support those elites. Um, so that's sort of what I became interested in. so, um, you know, it seemed to be this gap in the literature uh, in terms of, you know, again, there was a lot of people focusing on elites, but not really a deep understanding of why people support those elites. And particularly in democracies where you don't necessarily have to support elites who are turning to violence, where we don't have coercion um, or things like that necessarily going on. Um, so so I just saw sort of saw it as a gap in the literature, and I think you know I wasn't really focused on the individual terrorists because I think in political science uh, there is a tendency not to focus on on individuals. I think that's situated much more in psychology or, or criminology.
0: Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned there about Leonard Weinberg's uh, famous work on on this mm-hmm. uh, this topic here, but you haven't put uh, Weinberg's works down as as the influential pieces. And I know it <laughs> it does crop up in your research and it has influenced influenced you. But yeah, yeah. But there, the three pieces that you focused on are some of them mightn't be that familiar to uh, to our listeners, as familiar as as Lennon's <laughs> work was. The first one is by Calivas, uh, and I know from our mm-hmm. from our chats before that this has really uh, influenced your research, and you can see it, especially um, especially in your piece "Voting for Violence." And um, the this the piece. Um, the logic of violence and civil wars and what was it about this what about this piece that really influenced you what was it what does this what does this work say
1: yeah so i guess so again it's sort of like so i sort of in graduate school i sort of started with this framework that you know there was this gap that people weren't focusing on um on support networks or, or sort of the larger support for for these groups or violent entities um, and then, actually, in the Civil War literature, uh, there were people who were looking at uh, public support, um, and Calivas was one of them. Um, but Calivas's work uh, was was highly influential uh, in that you know he, you know he explains why we see uh, collaboration with rebel groups. But but the thing about Calivas's work is that he he really talks about mechanisms of coercion and credibility. And so what he argues um, is that in Civil War settings, uh, civilians will back whichever group maintains territorial control. Um, And that would be, you know, if, and and the idea is is that uh, because those groups, if they have territorial control, can coerce the civilian population into supporting them, or his other sort of argument is that civilians wanna be on the side that's winning, and territorial control sends a signal, right, that 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 group's likely to win the war. And and so his idea is that people will will publicly collaborate with whichever group uh, is is controlling their, their territory. Um, and so I thought that this was a, you know, a really interesting argument, but it, it again highlighted sort of a gap for me in the literature and that that explains why people publicly behave a certain way, right? Why I publicly might support the IRA um, you know, or another terrorist group, but it doesn't really explain their private preferences. So it doesn't explain how I actually feel about the IRA. Do I genuinely like them? Do I believe in their causes? Do I genuinely support their use of violence? Um, and so because I was interested in sort of voting and preferences at the polls, um, I was really interested in sort of those private preferences. And so, um, again, Kaleevis' work, like Weinberg's work, was highly influential, but I sort of saw this, this gap there that, you know, the, yes, this explains why people you know, publicly will collaborate with insurgents or terrorists, but it doesn't really explain you know, how they genuinely feel about them. And I think Martha Crenshaw argues you know, that in, in developed democracies, they really need this sort of level of genuine support in order to, to operate. Yeah, and so and, that's what I was interested in.
0: And would I be yeah. right in saying that you then built on uh, this this work looking at the, the public sphere, the public support, mm-hmm. and you found that the work of Wilkinson, uh, his re- their research on votes and violence, electoral competition, mm-hmm. and ethnic riots in India provided more of an insight into that private support then as well
1: yeah so so wilkinson's work was also highly influential and so it was sort of combining these two and thinking about things and and how what what each sort of theory uh brings to bear and and then also um, weinberg's uh work as well um but yeah so the idea with with wilkinson's work is that elites actually have incentives to to foment violence um so what you see in his work with the bjp is that the bjp is actually fomenting violence or failing to prevent ethnic riots um uh, in order to maximize their their voting base, um, and so they're really sort of using violence to to maximize their electoral base. Uh, the BJP is a little bit of a different case, and I don't talk about it much in the book manuscript because there is this distinction between groups that that actually use their you know the apparatus of the state. So you see the BJP using the police in certain ways again because they they are the elected um, you know uh, party and they're actually able to control the police and things like that. Um, and so when you think about um, terrorist groups, and even if you think about loyalists in Northern Ireland, the the dynamic's slightly different. Um, so there definitely is collusion with the police, but it's not like they're actually um, controlling those, you know, or, or sort of using the apparatus of the state in a certain way. So so there is this sort of, um, I think, a theoretical uh, distinction. but but his work was really interesting in thinking about how, uh groups might use violence to to maximize their support base and sort of uh, generate insecurities among among the population
0: and like you're using the reference of northern ireland here a good bit and it's for our listeners uh, who don't know the a lot of your research to date has focused on on the case of northern ireland that's what you really mm-hmm. focused on in your phd how did you yep. get how did you get an interest Doing a PhD in Princeton, where did your interest come in Northern Ireland specifically?
1: Yeah, so so I mentioned as an undergrad, I wrote this hundred-page thesis on uh, the Irish Revolution, um, and as part of uh, that that thesis, um, I looked at voting for Sinn Féin historically. So, um, you know, at the time of the Irish Revolution, um, and so I thought, uh, so I had always had, had an interest and had done some primary research. I was over in Ireland. Um, I won't say what year it was, but when I graduated, when I graduated, you know, right, right before I graduated undergrad, um, doing some work in archives there, looking at uh, support for Sinn Féin during those, those earlier years. Um, and so I, I had some background there, but Northern Ireland actually was the case where you could really sort of tease this question out. So at the time that I was doing my, my graduate studies, um, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah had just won elections. Uh, it was 2005, 2006. Um, and so these were sort of really, I, I thought, very interesting questions. You know, why in these relatively free and fair elections uh, do people back these these sorts of parties? And I thought Northern Ireland has this rich, you know, sort of history to draw on where we could really look at this this question more systematically. And obviously there are differences in levels of development and democracy um, across the cases, but it really provides this sort of rich um, uh, sort of place for analysis. So you can look, you know, not only at changes over time in support for the parties in Northern Ireland, you can look at variation um, within the communities in, in levels of support. So within the Catholic and, and Protestant communities, you can look at spatial variations. So I've data on um, over 100 electoral districts, you know, over, you know, the 30 year period, um, you can look at changes in those districts over time. And that level of data just isn't available for, for Lebanon or or the Palestinian territories. So, you know, we have rich census data for Northern Ireland. Um, the survey data leave a, a little bit to be desired, in my opinion, but you can sort of triangulate them with other things. Um, so it really sort of allows you to get the, get at these questions and then think about how the findings for Northern Ireland, you know, travel to, to
0: other places. And do you think they do travel?
1: I think to some extent they do. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think that there are, I, I sort of argue in, in my research that, there are more opportunities for parties. Uh, so so one of the arguments I make is that um, support for these parties stems from, from a security crisis, and I can actually show that certain types of violence uh, generate support for these parties, uh, prim- primarily state and sectarian violence against civilians. Um, and, and so what I argue is that in uh, places like Lebanon, there are more opportunities for terrorist groups to um, exploit the security situation by providing things like um, you know, electricity, uh, those sorts of things. So where you have sort of weak developing or corrupt states, um, there's just sort of more opportunities for those groups to step in. Um, in Northern Ireland, you definitely had uh, groups like the IRA helping people access services, but it wasn't really... Um, you know, the the sort of provision that we see in in a place like Lebanon.
0: So this is, like, we'll get back to the the final influential piece for you um, later on, but it it sort of ties in now well to your book manuscript and the PhD dissertation. So the PhD dissertation was voting for violence. It's going to be coming Mm -hmm. out in a book manuscript. Is that going to be Mm -hmm. in 2018 it comes out? Uh,
1: I'm not sure. I haven't sent it out yet. So it's soon.
0: (laughs) It might be out by the time this comes out. You never know. Um, you never know. So, for listeners, outside of everything we've talked about already, what's the overall aim of of this research? What was your methodology as well? So we know you you had that uh, those that electoral data, the spatial data in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. a very much a mixed method approach. It's not just these kind of data that you're using. There's so much more as well. So what what was your approach and what was your aim?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I guess I'll start with the aim. So. The aim was, I was actually as a graduate student, again, in terms of just one was, my so I guess my aim was one to, to sort of fill the, these voids in the literature that I saw. Um, so one is we don't understand what people's private preferences towards these groups and what affects them, um, as well as sort of, you know, electorally. Um, so I do also look electorally at how these parties are able to to mobilize their base. Um, and so so the aim is really to understand, you know, how we can, uh, one, bring these parties more fully into the system, um, and two, make Make their use of violence. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the correct word, but um, unproductive for them, right? So if if they can engage in all this violence and people support them anyway, right? Then it's really sort of um, you know problematic for democracy. So so I guess my aim was really to understand what it is that that undergirds uh, genuine support for these parties and think about the policy implications. So um, there were a lot of people at the time. Uh, again, as I mentioned, Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, you know, uh, had just, just won these elections, 2005-2006. Um, and there were a lot of people at the time saying, oh, well, support for these parties stems from the services they provide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we just need to go into Lebanon and provide services, you know, um, and that will undercut support for these parties. And I found that ar- those arguments really problematic. Um, I mean, I think it will help on the margins, but if you look at a place like Northern Ireland, it really wasn't about service provision. You have a developed democracy um, and so I, I just thought those arguments were wrong. Um, so, th- so that was sort of my, my aim. Um, in terms of my methods, um, as, as you discussed, I do do a lot of sort of quantitative analysis. I can look at districts over time and look at how certain types of violence within those districts affects support for uh, provisional Sinn Féin and, to a lesser extent, some of the, the loyalist parties. Um, but I also do interviews um, with, with paramilitaries, uh, uh, with politicians, um, to really uh, try and get at how, you know, what they saw as their voting base, how they sought to mobilize their voting base. Um, there's a lot of variation in how the different parties um, or how capable the different parties were of mobilizing uh, their electoral bases, um, you know, uh, from provisional Féin, which is very calculated, uh, at least uh, uh, later on, uh, to, you know, some of the loyalist parties, which really had a, a really difficult time. Um, so, I, so I sort of triangulate that data. I did a lot of archival work as well, um, and then I also look at, at, at this three other cases. So the bulk, the bulk of the manuscript focuses on Northern Ireland, but I also look at um, support for ETA in Spain, and also uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. And so with those those cases, Hamas and Hezbollah, especially, uh, the data just aren't there. So I can argue that sort of the, the findings there are consistent with the findings for Northern Ireland, but it's it's really hard to say anything causal with that data just because. Lebanon hasn't had a since I think since the 1930s so it's just really hard to get sort of any analytic leverage yeah. in those cases.
0: One of the things I I really like about your research is it it puts forward uh, these arguments it develops out these hypotheses it tests them but it's it uses a very common sense approach in the analysis of it so you, you talked about the the state services um and the the theory there that if we put the state services in place, then uh, then it would it would uh, lead to a decrease in support for these violent groups. But you made the point towards the end uh, of a of an article, which is going to which makes the the main arguments for this this piece. That okay, it's grand having the state services, but if the people don't feel safe going to these state services, it's not going to help really as well. And was mm-hmm. this something that you gained really from the qualitative interviews or was this something that that was being drawn out from the, from the quantitative data?
1: No, that's uh, primarily from uh, the, the qualitative work. So not just um, uh, from interviews, but then also, um, you know, it's really hard to do any sort of systematic interviewing of just mm-hmm. the general citizens in Northern Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> so, um so yeah so uh, but even just going back to some of the archival data and looking at how people uh, were responding in their neighborhoods and the problems they had and complaints so going through archives uh you know complaints uh, to the uh, community relations council and things like that so i mean you'd often find in northern ireland that you know okay the state's still providing these things but we if accessing them um or you know we don't feel comfortable interacting with state providers because of how they treat our community um, so, you know, and I think that, th- that, that's, uh, you know, really sort of explains that even if, you know, it's, it's not like the state in Lebanon can just come in and start providing services. Um, but you know, if we still have these sort of, uh, you know, sort of the, the conflict with Israel and Southern Lebanon, you know, it's not, it's not going to make Hezbollah go away. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, and, and again, how, how credible of a provider is the state seen uh, in, in Southern Lebanon. So I You know, especially if it's not so people's perceptions are that the state in southern Lebanon and also in Northern Ireland during certain periods was not providing for its security. And so that shapes their their interactions with state providers and things like that. And if terrorist groups can come in and be a more effective provider of that security, um, then they they sort of generate uh, the legitimacy that the state would would otherwise have. So,
0: yeah. So no matter what the state provision that's being provided, if the state isn't seen as legitimate or is seen as being against them it's yeah. uh, that can sometimes have more of an effect than uh, than than just the actual provision itself so we have to think of all these different aspects how did you find actually going out and doing the interviews what kind of because you were you uh, you interviewed across a, a broad time frame you interviewed in a post boston college uh, uh, <laughs> environment i know For our listeners uh who want an insight into boston the boston college affair uh have a listen to the neil ferguson podcast from from (laughs) january but um how did you find that what did you find that uh, there were people reticent to talk to you or
1: yeah so actually i guess i guess i have a little bit of a natural experiment (laughs) because i did i did interviews before boston college and then i did interviews after boston college um i found that the topics that i was asking about weren't um You know, so, I mean, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit, but the disengagement uh, topic was a little bit harder in terms of interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, But but in terms of just, you know, it's a little bit easier to go in and say, you know, it's also, also, I think, a little bit how you frame it. Um, And I was never dishonest, but, I mean, I was studying electoral politics. So, you know, it's sort of I'm more interested in sort of how you mobilize your support base, why you think people voted for your party, um, things like that. So. Um, I think that uh, I didn't really notice a difference in willingness to talk about those topics pre and post Boston College, because I wasn't necessarily talking about their involvement in violence, although sometimes that would come up. but it wasn't that wasn't sort of the focus of the interview. It wasn't on that, you know, their particular actions um, or or participation in the attacks or things like that. So, um, I also think they found it a little bit refreshing. I find in Northern Ireland,, um, you know, you kind of get, the same story over and over again from the same people, and they, they get. I think they get tired of telling it. So, um, I think just talking about something a little bit different, um, you know, was a you know a little bit refreshing, and and again didn't raise the same sort of sensitivities as um, you know sort of the involvement, engagement, disengagement, what are you doing, sort of things.
0: Yeah, I know. I completely understand that, and I had similar experiences myself. That when you're talking to them about. Something much different. To others are talking about. They're actually going. Oh, at last, I can talk about something different other than yeah. <laughs> the hunger strikes or something like that. So yeah, it's uh... yeah, exactly. And yeah. When, when you're doing your your analysis, like this is a podcast about terrorism research but when we're looking at the violence in places like northern ireland it's not just terrorist violence that you're looking at you're looking at the violent vigilantism of these groups as well did you notice a significant difference between the the effects that the the localized vigilantism was having on voting behavior versus the the broader national terrorist uh, activity
1: yeah i mean so um so, again, I was really focused on, so, uh, controlling for everything that's, because, again, I was interested in sort of testing these arguments about security and and insecurity um, at the low. Hello?
0: Oh. Yeah. yeah. I lost
1: you a second, yeah, John. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> uh,
0: if you want to just start that that answer again, that'll be fine.
1: Uh, what was the question? Um, <laughs> oh, is the difference yeah.
0: between the vigilantism and, uh, do, I'll ask the question Oh, the again. different
1: types, the different types of violence, Yeah, right?
0: exactly. Okay, exactly. Yeah. If right. you, okay, whenever you're ready.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I was really interested in looking at, um, the, uh, the effects of, of local types of violence controlling for what was going on at the national level, um, because I really wanted to get at, um, how citizens' perceptions of their security, um, affect, affected their voting behavior. Um, and so what you see is actually that, um, In uh, certain communities, uh, state violence, well, in all communities in Northern Ireland, state violence against Catholic civilians um, had a dramatic effect on on increasing Sinn Féin's vote share within that community. Um, Sectarian violence, uh, only in communities where where Sinn Féin already enjoyed support, had uh, a positive uh, effect on their vote share. Um, And vigilante violence actually also had a positive effect um, on Sinn Féin's vote share. And I think it was um, While well that, that violence was reviled um, outside the communities where it was going on, um, you actually see, and you actually this comes through in sort of the qualitative interview data um, and some of the work Rachel Monahan and others have done, um, you actually see people welcome that violence um, because law and order and policing had broken down, again, because people weren't communicating with state providers, law enforcement, etc. Um, so you actually see, even though, again, outside in sort of more moderate nationalist communities, people might have um you know condemned the violence or saw it as horrific um in communities where um law, law and order had broken down it was sort of seen as uh you know the best alternative to, to nothing or anarchy mm-hmm.
0: yeah and you're seeing that you see that in the the work of andrew silk and others as well mm-hmm. and I, I think you make a really good point that the, it doesn't matter what people from the external communities how they view that violence what matters is how the people in those local communities view it that's what that's the target audience of the violence in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's very easy to condemn externally, but you need to understand the effects uh, locally as well in order to, in, in order to get really get a grasp of, of the role that this violence is playing. Um, you like this book is, it's, it's going to be a fascinating book when it, when it comes out, it's, it's going to really, I'm sure it will. I'm sure (laughs) it will. It's, it's going to really add to the literature and so I'm sure, uh, i'm sure you'll get many people who are listening here who who'll want to buy it now as well but i hope so you picked a really interesting piece as the final piece of um that influenced you and it links up to your disengagement work but As a title, it's not something you expect to hear in a terrorism podcast. It's it's (laughs) Rustbolt's uh, 1980 piece, Commitment and Satisfaction in Romantic Associations. Now, when you look at that, (laughs) first of all, you think, how on earth is she going to link this to terrorism (laughs) research? So what exactly is the, how did this research influence you and how did you come across it?
1: Yeah. So, um, Rispelt, um, so actually she has so many pieces I could have picked any. Um, so she looks at commitment and satisfaction in many different types of associations. Um, but that was one of her earlier pieces. So I picked, I picked that one, um, but she has a very, uh, large, uh, large, uh, citation list. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I was, uh, working with, with John Horgan on a project on disengagement. Um, and what we, you know, uh, one of the things we were doing was sort of reviewing, um, different literatures to see, uh, how we could leverage them to to better understand the disengagement process. So, looking at the literature on criminology, uh, looking you know criminal desistance, looking at the literature on disaffiliation from new religious movements. Um, but then we also started looking at psychology, social psychology, sociology, um, to try and, and and better sort of think about uh, the disengagement process. And I guess one of the things that's always frustrated me with the literature on disengagement is um, it's very it's very sort of st- the process is always um, or historically has been described as, as very sort of static and centered around this, uh, this push-pull framework. And so there's this, you know, the pushes are the things um, about your involvement in terrorism that push you out, and pulls are uh, lures, uh, you know, outside the group that might lure you away uh, from your, your terrorist role. Um, and so one of the, the things that always troubled me about the push-pull framework is that it can't really tell us why some people experience these pushes and pulls and leave, right, and some people experience these pushes and pulls and stay. Um, and so I found Bolt has this uh, commitment model, um, and I found it really useful for thinking about the disengagement process. And so it largely sort of shaped the, the work uh, that's in the Turning Away from Terrorism article and the Why They Leave article. Um, so it allows for sort of a more dynamic uh, uh, thinking about disengagement. So, so her, her model is the investment model, is that one's commitment to any anything. So it's your commitment to a sport, your commitment to your romantic partner, your commitment to your job, uh, your child, any, your, any sort of social role that you have um, is a function of the satisfaction that you get from that role uh, minus the alternatives available to you, plus your sunk costs. Um, and so, so that sort of provides, a, a, and, and the, that, that level of commitment can change over time, right? Your commitment one day may be different than your commitment another day. Um, it's also uh, more more individually based. Um, so I know um, in previous podcasts, you talked about how involvement in terrorism is very, very individualized. Um, so the satisfaction that one gets from involvement, you know, might be related to the social bonds that they get. um and they might not be committed to the ideology. So certain push pulls might not affect their level of satisfaction, but might affect other people's. Um and the model also explains why, you know, why you might be experiencing all these push-pulls or, you know, a lot of disillusionment, but you might stay in the group because you do have these these sunk costs or lack of alternatives. So um, I found her framework really, really useful for, for thinking about the disengagement process. And more importantly, um, there's a robust uh, empirical evidence base for the models. So in social psychology, it's been tested and validated across, an, as I mentioned, across a number of social roles. So, you know, we, we always complain in terrorism, well, we don't have this... Um, evidence-based and it's really hard to get this evidence-based um, but there is this sort of literature with a strong evidence base across a number of social roles and if we just think about terrorism as a social role um, then the model should should hold so
0: yeah so and as you say and you, you make this point strongly uh in the the turning away from terrorism piece it's it's a lot more flexible than that that stage-based model and one of yeah. the it's it's something that uh, yeah it, it it's really it's really respects the role of the individual and uh but it as you as you say it it while it's there within the in a number of different social roles it does need validation within within mm-hmm. terrorism and you went about doing this um alongside John Horgan and and Christian Thurgood uh, you you were putting this forward in the turning away from terrorism uh mm-hmm. literature you have this investment model uh, Russ Boltz one been put forward alongside uh, other models from sociology and from criminology the, mm-hmm. the key one from sociology being the EBO model uh, voluntary role exit and um, mm-hmm. why did you choose the three disciplines of psychology sociology and criminology as disciplines to to look at uh, for alternative models in in relation to disengagement
1: um so i guess i mean i guess the reason was is that they all look at why why? Well, so, I mean, criminal assistance, obviously, there are cl- the clear parallels there and clear differences. And I think a lot of terrorism researchers had looked before um, at that, that literature. Um, in terms of uh, criminology and social psychology, or sorry, sociology and social psychology, Um, I think, again, they they sort of, uh, these are literatures that have broadly looked at people's commitments um, to certain social groups or social roles, and so it just seemed like a really relevant literature um, to draw on. We also looked at, um, Christian Thurgood is actually an industrial and organizational psychologist, um, and so he was really helpful in sort of pointing out literature that might be useful. Um, So we also looked at the IO psychology literature um, and looked at why people um, have commitments uh, to uh, certain organizations in terms of their jobs and what causes them to quit Quit organizations. Um, so why someone might quit Google and go work for Microsoft.
0: From these models, so we've got the investment model, we've got the voluntary role exit model, we have the the broader criminology module models as well, we've got the influence from IO Psych. Um, what do you think of all of these, which connect, do you think has the greatest potential in helping us understand why people turn away from terrorism?
1: Well again, I mean I, for me personally, I think the commitment model is the most useful. It's the most general. Um, obviously it has limitations because it does capture all those individual nuances. so in capturing all those individual nuances, it's hard to you know really say you know if we want to get people to disengage from terrorism, we should do X, right yeah. um, so, I think that it's more useful than some of the um, uh, desistance literature, not necessarily the theoretical models from desistance, but um, you know the desistance literature focuses a lot on the pull factors, um, so uh, basically pro-social ties um, with other individuals, you know, career and family, those sorts of things. Um, but we, a- we actually found um, in the article, the Why They Leave article, uh, is that uh, those pools don't seem to matter for those who are ideologically committed. Um, so with terrorism, you have people who, uh, not all, but some who are deeply committed to the ideology. Um, and so for those individuals, we found that these these push factors are, are more important. So that's sort of where I see a limitation um, in applying the desistance literature, um, because there do seem to be some important differences uh for for terrorism research
0: yeah so you you mentioned there the why why they leave article this is uh it's an analysis of uh 87 autobiographies again carried out during your time in penn state with emma leonard boyle neil shortland and and again john horgan as well um why did you before we get to the findings there um why did you choose to to analyze autobiographies and how did you find them as a as a as a data source (laughs) <laughs> it's a loaded question <laughs> <laughs> no no no
1: um, yeah so so the idea behind the autobiographies um, was that we could capture so and we talk about this in the article but one of the advantages that i saw is that you can you can capture this broad spectrum um, of terrorists across a range of groups so with interviews um you're a little bit you know at least the interview studies that i've seen um to some extent you know you have a small sample um you have a lot of times individuals from one group um and so these studies are really useful in terms of, you know, offering us insight uh, into different processes. Um, but I was sort of interested in understanding why we see, um, you know, or which of these push pull factors uh, may be more frequent frequent among the terrorist population. So if, if some of these things are going, you know, we know it's an individualized process, but maybe in terms of policy recommendations. Um, so DHS, for instance, was really interested in, you know, well, which of these factors matter more? You know, which ones should we be focused on? Which ones will you know, get the most number of terrorists to disengage, right, sort of be the most bang for your buck. Um, and so the autobiographies allowed us to draw a, a large sample of terrorists across a range of groups. Um, and again, we, we don't have perfect knowledge of the terrorist population, so I can't say how representative it is. You know, I can tell you which which groups may be overrepresented, but again, I don't, you know, I can't really say how well our sample reflects the terrorist population because we don't know what that is. Um, but, um, so the idea was, you know, which of these, these push pull factors, um, seem to matter more in disengagement decisions. So, um, or matter, matter more for more people. Um, so that was the idea behind, behind the article. And I mean, there are a lot of, uh, limitations, uh, with using autobiographies. Um, but as, as we argue in the article, I mean, I think a lot of them also, um, are true of interviews, um, and in that people, you know, may, you, know, you have this sort of retrospective bias, you, um, you know, you have, uh, Basically, motivations to present yourself in the best light, right? You can lie. Um, you need to be really careful in who, who you're looking at, that they're not these sort of celebrity terrorists. Um, so we we took a few of those out of our sample, or or cases where we knew the autobiography was um, clearly, you know, uh, not accurate. Uh, Jerry Adams, we had to take out of the sample because he never admitted he was an IRA. So <laughs> we had to, you know, take take his book out. So, um, yeah, So we were careful um, as as best we could be, but they do provide this. This rich data source, and you get you get the individual's whole life course um, for you know uh, for most of them. So,
0: yeah, no, I, I I know you think it was a loaded question that I was I was asking you, but I do think that it's a it's a, they're a rich source of data as well, and I think you've used them really well here in this piece. And one of the when it comes to the findings, one of the things that I didn't find surprising, but I was delighted to see that it was drawn out in your in your research. It's not really focused on as much is uh by by others is that it was it was the day-to-day tasks it was that was more likely to push people out uh, of these uh terrorist groups than than the other more headline grabbing aspects of of involvement in terrorism so what what exactly did this mean what did this 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 find what does this finding tell us
1: yeah. So again, I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, it really wasn't uh, this, uh, there's was a lot of focus on, you know, we need to de-radicalize everyone. And we found, I think it was only 16% in our sample, deradicalization played a large role in their disengagement. And it really was these sort of more mundane things about disillusionment with uh, the actions of the group, um, you know, day to day tasks, those sorts of things, which is where the IO psych literature really ties in nicely, because these are things why people leave, you know, Google or Microsoft, Um and so then there's certain behaviors that people exhibit um, on their way out. Um, so lo- things like less helping behaviors. There's, there are certain sort of behavioral indicators that you can tie to to this sort of disillusionment. Um, I will say that, that uh, you know, uh, the government wasn't too happy with this because these are sort of the harder solutions, right? It's not like, again, with the assistance literature, it's not like we can just offer them you know uh you know money or a job or or those sorts of things those don't really work for for the ideologically committed at least our research shows so and those are the easy solutions you know um you know really sort of generating this sort of disillusionment uh is is a little bit more difficult so
0: and so so with that difficult task in mind if you were to bring like one or two recommendations from these Mm -hmm. what what would it be like how how can we (laughs) apply this then because it, it it does make it a lot trickier than just countering an ideology.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I guess maybe not focusing on, I mean, so one of the ones was disillusionment with the strategy or actions of the group Mm. or leaders or members. So maybe, you know, sort of, um, I mean, I don't, I do think you could still potentially use, I mean, you'd have to test how effective it would be, but you could potentially use some sort of you know, counter narrative, if you want to call it that campaign, where you, um, you know, you highlight uh, disagreements between members, you highlight things the leaders are doing that contradict the ideology, um, you highlight strategies or actions by the groups, sort of snafus, things like that. So, but again, not focused so much on on the ideology per se, but sort of things that are going wrong organizationally. Um, and there are obviously covert things that you could do to sort of exacerbate these, these problems. Um, but, you know, even just highlighting, you know, so and so wanted to go join ISIS and wanted to be a suicide bomber, and now he's you know there's that famous Daily Mail article. Now he's cleaning toilets. So mm-hmm. um, you know, so just sort of highlighting those those day to day issues.
0: And like so, these are the pieces that that. Um, they- you focused on here and mm-hmm. for today's podcast, what's, what does, what's the future of your research now? Where, where's it going to go yeah. next?
1: Well, so, so hopefully getting the article in the book out, so that's, mm-hmm. that's priority number one. Um, but then, um, what we're doing now is we're taking, uh, hopefully my January will be spent, uh, taking the, um, the autobiography data and looking at re-engagement. So the autobiography, one, one advantage also of the autobiographies is, uh, providing us with, again, an individual's life course, Uh, So we can actually look at um, the factors associated with re-engagement and recidivism and sort of get some baseline rates. Um, So a lot of these individuals uh, weren't subject to uh, a lot of surveillance. There certainly weren't uh, de-radicalization programs in place um, for most of these individuals. So um, it really allows us to to look at sort of baseline rates um, of re-engagement and recidivism and then also look at the factors associated um, with re-engagement and recidivism, also by by different types of disengagement. So whether it was voluntary, whether it was the result of imprisonment. Um, so we're really sort of mining that data. Um, and hopefully, uh, it will be useful to uh, practitioners who are are looking to design um, these these risk reduction initiatives for terrorists.
0: Oh, that sounds brilliant. And when we're talking about re-engagement here, are you talking about Reengagement in the violent activity, or reengagement with the group itself? Are you talking about people who haven't left the group but who are committing violent activity uh, once once more? Is that what you're what what you mean?
1: Yeah, no. Uh, so I mean, it's specifically focused on reengagement in terrorism. Mm-hmm. If that's what you're asking. Yeah. So not not just any criminal behavior, but yeah, reengagement in in a terrorist activity. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that, sounds, that sounds fascinating. And are you going to be focusing purely on the autobiographical, uh, auto, autobiography data, or are you going to be um, using another mixed method approach again?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, so uh, there are some, um, from interviews I've done, I mean, there are there is some interview data that could be used. Um, I find uh, that uh, <laughs> journals aren't always so uh, open to that, mm-hmm. that data, but um, I mean, I think sort of if I can tie in some of the... Um, the interview data uh, in with the analysis uh, of the autobi- autobiographies that would be that would be ideal. So, they- um, because I, sorry.
0: <laughs> oh no! No, go on. Go on.
1: Yeah. No, I was going to say because there are things that you can learn from the interviews that you know that the data don't necessarily make clear. Um, so I think you know they do provide this sort of rich, um, you know, understanding. So I find for me a lot of my the things that i want to test quantitatively come from interviews so you sort of use the interviews to kind of better understand what's going on better understand maybe that or develop a theory and then you can use the quantitative data to see you know well you know do the data support this right or is this individual just idiosyncratic right
0: no i think it's going to be it'll be great i'm really looking forward to to seeing this because we really don't have enough literature in um, in terrorism studies on re-engagement recidivism and the like it's um and make a valuable contribution, I'm sure. So before we press record here, we were we were chatting about a, a, a former colleague of ours, Paul Gills, answer <laughs> to the next question. And I told you you have to be more controversial than him in this uh, answer. I don't now.
1: know, I don't know.
0: <laughs> so do you think there is a stagnation in terrorism research?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. I don't think there is at all. Um, you know, I do think that, um, you know, if you, if you just look at the... Uh, the methodologies that are being employed, uh, the, the amount of data that we've collected. I d- absolutely do not think that there is a, a stagnation in terrorism research. Um, when I started my my PhD, um, you know, there, there were some great sources, but there wasn't much, you know, it was a lot of case study. I remember reading a lot of Martha Crenshaw's work, which I thought was wonderful. Um, but outside of her, her research, um, you know, there wasn't Leonard Weinberg's work. There wasn't sort of this rich... Um, Empirical base to draw on and now now I think that it's become the fields become much more interdisciplinary um, You know, we've STR we have uh, sort of initiatives bringing in I mean if I think about my own uh, Own career, you know, I started off in political science with John I read I was fortunate to read a lot of the literature on criminology psychology social psychology sociology um, so, you know, I think that um, there, there certainly isn't a stagnation. I mean, I do think um where stajman is a is a little bit correct, is sort of cooperation between um, practitioners, policymakers, and academics. I mean, I do see a I do see a fair amount of it. I see a lot of it, um, but I do think that there's opportunities for for more collaboration in that space. I don't think that there's none. I mean, I think that's a little overstated. But I think that there's there's certainly more opportunities uh, to collaborate.
0: You mentioned STr there's Society for Terrorism Research. You actually hosted the the last uh, conference how did you how did you find out what did, what 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 did you feel of the quality of, of the papers there it sounded like it was a great conference from what i heard. well,
1: well it was missing john morrison so oh. it wasn't a great it wasn't a great conference but <laughs> it, it could have been better um but no no it was great i mean fabulous fabulous research um again really i the, the one thing i like about str is everyone's focusing on on terrorism research um, but again drawing from different disciplines um, Jim Piazza was uh, one of the keynotes, you know And he commented because Jim and I are always at APSA, but you know APSA is so big and you know You might be on a panel with someone but but STR really gives you an opportunity to um, You know to, to really see what what other people are doing closely and everybody's research interests are are, are so connected
0: Yeah, no, it, it's, it's great. It's a it's a great great opportunity to have and I'd strongly encourage anyone uh I'm actually not involved with SGR. I don't know why I'm plugging them now, but I think <laughs> I should. I, I, I am in, I'm involved as a member, I, su- I suppose. But definitely, uh, if you get a chance, go to the, the upcoming Liverpool conference. It, it promises yeah. to be a really great, great event and a place where you can really hear about the, the most up-to-date research in, in terrorism studies now. So do you like you started off with a, a career in actuary and now you're you're studying why people leave terrorist groups do you miss the actuary at all or is, is this a lot no. more interesting
1: no no this is a lot more it, it was not it was not for me so
0: yeah. well I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that uh, actuary's losses are game now. it's uh, <laughs> anyone who wants to to read um, any of Mary Beth's pieces there are links to it on the the talking terror website yeah uel.ac.uk slash terc go to the talking terror we- section of the website with the name like Altier, you're right up at the top there of the list so <laughs> it's hard, hard to miss so um go go to the the links for her research but also um for the research that has inspired Mary Beth as well um be sure also to follow us on Twitter t-e-r-c-u-e-l and have a listen to our our previous episodes if you haven't had a chance yet there's some great ones there uh but mary beth thank you so much for uh for spending the time on on today's podcast i hope uh you and your family have a very happy christmas i know (laughs) this podcast is probably going out in march or april or may or whenever. (laughs) so it might sound weird saying that now but uh thank you so much and uh i'll chat to you all soon bye